You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Alexis King, who works on GHC, the world's most widely used Haskell compiler. We talk about things people often say about static and dynamic typing, and which ones may sound plausible, but actually don't hold up when you give them the closer look. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, type system myth-busting. All right, Alexis, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So you wrote a blog post somewhat recently, I want to say it's like in the past year or so, that I really liked. It was about sort of like myth-busting some things that people say, that you've heard people say, which I've also heard people say about dynamic typing and like some of its strengths, which are uh, sort of like factually incorrect. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It was actually a couple of years ago now, if you can believe it. it wow, really? I think I wrote it around the beginning of 2020. Yeah, that was a couple of years ago now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, time flies. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that that's accurate. I mean, the to give, I guess, just a little bit of context, I wrote it because I, just a few months prior, I'd written parse don't validate, which has become kind of the blog post that everybody asks me questions about now. So I actually kind of appreciate that you decided to pick a different one because I think that while, you know, obviously I understand and I'm very grateful for why people have appreciated parse don't validate. I think that there were a couple of blog posts, including that one that I wrote afterwards, because the first one had been so popular that people had reacted to it and responded to it. And one of the things that I found sort of frustrating or that I sort of realized were opportunities for further blog posts were that there were certain ways that I think people tended to misunderstand or react to it in ways that were not quite accurate. And that, so that was one example of one of those blog posts. So like people were reacting to parse don't validate saying like, oh, well, in a dynamic language, you don't have to worry about all this nonsense and everything is magically <laughs> the right shape. <laughs> the data is just like exactly how you expect it to be and everything's fine or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the sort of mentality that many people have, which I do kind of understand, is that if you are using a static type system, then this means that you have to build a very rigid system and that a dynamically typed system allows you to build a more flexible system. And I think that in some ways, perhaps you can make the case that the two different styles encourage you to build things one way or the other. But my perspective has always been that I don't really buy that argument or I don't think it's a, a particularly compelling argument because I think that that's just sort of assuming that the programmer isn't really thinking about what they're doing as they're doing it. Whereas if you really do you know, consciously think about what you're doing and apply the type system usefully, then I think it can be almost even more valuable in situations where you're not building a very rigid system. Yeah, and I think something that gets missed in a lot of static versus dynamic discussions is that within static typing and within dynamic typing, there are a lot of different type systems. And those different type systems are like varying degrees of good at modeling things. For example, I can think of some statically typed systems that I would think of as inflexible compared to like what I'm used to. Like maybe they don't have a concept of some types at all. And so there's just no easy way to model something like that where there's multiple different like alternative shapes. It's like you have to try and do it with like subclassing or inheritance kind of. And it's it's just not as nice and it, it feels less flexible. But also like 
different dynamic languages have different type systems as well. It's not like there's something innate to whether you're checking the types at compile time versus at runtime that forces a type system to be more or less restrictive. Although granted, I mean, if you're thinking about what are the languages we actually have today that in practice have been implemented, there's certainly a correlation. Okay, fine. But that's not the same thing as like implying that it's an innate law of the universe that like things have to be that way. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that one of the things that I have tried to impress in many of the things that I've written, both about typing disciplines and otherwise, is that there really are a lot of subtleties to many of these things. And it's not black and white question of, is it statically typed? Is it dynamically typed? I mean, I think that one of the interesting things that came up in a lot of the discussions that I was responding to was, you know, languages like Java, which I always think is very interesting because I think Java, which, I mean, I think Java was probably my first exposure to a statically typed programming language. Yeah. And I think that that's true for a lot of people, or at least it was true. I guess it's probably not as true nowadays, but for a long time that was the case. And I think Java is representative of what in many people's minds is sort of what a static type system is all about. But I think what's interesting to me is that Java actually has a very, very rich, I mean, obviously Java does have a static type system, but it also has a very rich dynamic type system that coexists within the same language. (laughs) Right. And I think that that sort of thing is something that people don't really talk about very much, but actually has a very significant impact on how the language works in practice, how it feels to use, and sort of some of the things that you can and cannot do. And so I think that trying to kind of broaden people's understanding of how to look at a type system or how to think about it, a programming language generally is something that wanted to do, but it's it can be a challenge. Yeah, you know who I have heard talk about that aspect of the JVM is Rich Hickey, so who's the author of Clojure. Mm-hmm. And he's talked about it in contrast to the CLR, which is like what .NET stuff compiles down to. So you look at like C Sharp and Java, and you might look at them and say, these are very, very similar languages. But the runtimes they're built on top of, and I don't know the low-level details of this because I haven't done much <laughs> low-level JVM or CLR stuff. But apparently, according to Rich, at least, there's a lot of dynamism in like even down to the bytecode level. It's not just Java as a language, but it's the whole VM has, I assume what he means by that is there's a lot of like runtime type information available in the VM itself. And therefore it's a much better host for a language like Clojure than the CLR is, which is a lot less good of a fit for building a dynamic language on top of. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I'll confess that I don't know that much about the low level details of the CLR because I just haven't done very much Windows development, but I know, for example, that Java has type erased generics, whereas C Sharp doesn't. And they're actually, I I believe, preserved at runtime. So my intuition would be that there are at least some ways in which the CLR has more dynamic information. But I'll confess, I, I don't know that much more about how the CLR works. So maybe that's true to some extent. That could be a an actually like a higher level distinction where it's like Java made that choice, but maybe C Sharp didn't. But maybe the runtimes, you know, yeah. I don't know either, though. <laughs> that's just speculation on my <laughs> yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, That's interesting. Uh, speaking of Rich Hickey, so another talk of his that I, I've watched several times. I'm thinking of the talk Maybe Not, which I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen it. I mean, I feel like bringing up Rich Hickey is kind of a, a dangerous topic because... Let's step into the danger zone. <laughs> I think it sounds great. I, I'm just sort of consciously playing in my head how much I want to say or not say, because obviously I don't want to offend anybody. But I have strong opinions, and, and so let's dive in. 
I have a lot of friends who are very into typed pure functional programming. I'm making a pure functional programming language. That's how into it I am. I have written a book about it, Element Action. I'm very in that camp. I'm a big maybe fan. So when I see a talk that's like maybe not, and it's about how actually maybe sucks, I didn't exactly go into it with a mindset of like, oh, I'm going to agree with this. But what I found was that after watching it, I kind of had to do it several times, I think in large part in order to try and get myself into a headspace where I could evaluate it more objectively. I still don't agree with his conclusions, but I have ended up sort of being more precise about what I disagree with. And this is kind of the part that reminded me about your blog post is that if I try to break it down into objective things, there's a couple of points that he makes that are, I think, objectively valid critiques in the same way that the critique that you make of dynamic systems in that blog post is, I think, just objectively correct. It's like, these are just facts. This is not about your personal preference. It's just, these are just true things. He says some things that are, give me an example, backwards compatibility. He talks about how like, if this function takes an argument and in the future, you want to relax that restriction and say, you don't need to give me this argument anymore. In let's say, for example, Haskell, you would say, okay, I'm going to, or you might decide to model it as like, I'm going to make this take a maybe argument now. And that's a breaking change. You now have to like wrap it and adjust if you want to pass it in yada, yada. And he makes the point that if instead you have nullable or something like that, you can do that in a, a backwards compatible way. That's objectively true. Okay, fair enough. But when I'm honest with myself, and he has this line in that talk that is like etched into my brain which is, I say it's etched in, but like I, the wording he uses is a little bit, <laughs> I don't know, a little bit weird. So it's something along the lines of, I've never used a static type system where I didn't desperately want union types, like the ability to say like, this is a string or an int. And like, this is a thing that you now have. And like TypeScript is like a obviously widely used language that has this like Sorbet for Ruby. I assume Python has like MyPy has, has a similar thing. I just haven't desperately wanted that. Like I have used languages that have and have not had that. I've used dynamic languages in my career. I've used statically typed languages, a bunch of them, a bunch of both. And it's just not that important to me. So it's like, I see where he's coming from. I just disagree with the conclusion, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense. And I guess for what it's worth, at the end of that, I think it was that blog post in question, I did actually kind of allude to the fact that I think that there is a kernel of truth to a lot of the sort of rhetoric that comes from people like Richicki. And really what they're describing is the downsides of nominal typing, where Mm, nominal typing is specifically the style where every type has a name, which is where the name nominal typing comes from. And and they're all distinct. (laughs) They're sort of generative. But what's interesting, what's interesting, and this is something that I think is often overlooked, is that nominal typing and versus structural typing, which is sort of the alternative, they are not, well, they are sort of historically loosely aligned with static versus dynamic typing. There are nominal typing features in many dynamically typed languages, and there are now structural typing features in many statically typed languages. So I think one of the examples that I gave in that blog post, which I think continues to be a pretty good example, is that Python classes, even if you're using totally dynamically typed Python, are nominally typed. If you have two classes that have the same structure, but they're declared separately, then they're different types and they're sort of incompatible with each other. Now, it right. is true that because those languages tend to be more, I guess, what people would refer to as duct typed and that yeah. <laughs> everything is sort of just implicitly programming to an interface, then in practice, that might not be a big problem. But of course, if you have subtyping or instance of checks or whatever, then 
the difference does show up. And there's, you know, examples like that in a variety of different programming languages. And I think that this just sort of illustrates that while there is a distinction to be made, it's not as simple as saying statically typed languages aren't, you know, make it difficult to do this. Dynamically typed languages don't, which I think is one of the reasons that I find it frustrating. You know, I find that particular type of rhetoric a little bit frustrating because while there are particular patterns and idioms, I think that dynamically typed programmers use that are genuinely difficult to model in statically typed programming languages, I think that the discussions are so rarely about those and instead are about just kind of things that are, as far as I am concerned, largely false or or superstitions, (laughs) but just feel right. Like people will say, you know, I don't like using statically typed programming languages because they force me to artificially constrain my program and I just want to be able to write whatever I want. But that doesn't say anything, right? That doesn't mean anything. Whereas I think when people are able to actually produce concrete, specific examples of this is something that I want to encode into this other programming language, sometimes you can kind of come to a conclusion that in fact, it is kind of difficult to express that. And then there's interesting reasons why, but that is very different from just saying, oh, you know, I don't like static typing. Yeah, I, (laughs) I was once on a panel, like speaking of like, things that people say that are false or superstitious or whatever you want to call it. I was once on a panel that was about static and dynamic typing. And one of the participants of the panel said something, and I might be misquoting slightly, but it was something along the lines of, our brains are dynamically typed. And A, I don't really know what that means. (laughs) I mean, literally our brains don't have type systems as far as I know. They don't have like runtime type checking or compile time type checking. If anything, our brains might be untyped like machine code where there's not even like, I mean, have you ever had your brain be like, uh oh, undefined is not a function. Like, what does that yeah, even I mean, mean? I don't think our brains are stored program computers, so I'm not really sure they're, that right, they're they're there's any, yeah. any useful analogy to make. Right. But like, this is a comment that the panelist made in the in the middle of a like, they were saying a bunch of things and that was just kind of thrown it in the middle. So I didn't feel the need to like stop and be like, let's go back to that thing you said. What was that all about? But I think it's it's illustrative of like the types of things that I hear a lot of in this discussion. And to be fair, I also have heard some ridiculous things said from static typing proponents. I don't want to say this is like a one-sided thing, but it's definitely like, it's pretty easy to go from, <laughs> I've tried a couple of different dynamically typed languages and I've tried a couple of different statically typed languages And here are the commonalities that I see between the dynamic ones that I don't see in the static ones that I've used. And I'm just going to apply that to all languages that are in that category. And this is especially weird if it's like, well, I've used all sorts of statically typed languages. Let me just list them off. I've used Java and C++ and C. So, you know, I've really got a large enough sample size that I know what all of them are about now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree that in practice, a lot of the discussion that people have is just based on, oh, you know, these are the things that I happen to be familiar with. But also just kind of arguing backwards from the conclusion, the emotional conclusions that people want to have. And this is absolutely something that happens all the time from people who are advocates of static typing, unfortunately. Like one of the things that I personally have found most frustrating about the way that Haskell programmers, for example, talk about static typing is that they talk about static type, the Haskell type system as if it's a form of like formal verification. And it's just not, <laughs> yeah, it's just right. not. Like the, there's, there's a yeah. huge difference between formal verification and using a nice type system. 
using the Haskell type system is not about formally verifying that your program does the right thing. The main thing that the Haskell type system is good for is that it prevents you from having to write, you know, throw exception, this should never happen. And that's very useful. Being able to have your compiler inform you of situations where you haven't handled a particular case and then allowing you to kind of propagate back those constraints until everything sort of meets somewhere in the middle. That's a very useful way of iteratively doing development. But the idea that this is guaranteeing that your program is correct is simply false. And I think that that's even true if you are using a dependent type system, although, of course, dependent type systems are not really fleshed out enough to say what programming with them in anger is like. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely possible for some problem domains to write out a very specific spec of like, this is exactly what the program should do. And then there's tools that can verify, did your program actually follow this spec? But those are very, very small, very, very narrow, limited niche use cases. And like way less than 1% of all programs can be done in that way. And so the idea that like a comparatively mainstream language like Haskell would be like a tool for doing that is just, yeah, it's just false. (laughs) That's not supportable. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, of course, I mean, it's kind of funny because I've been branded a static typing person. (laughs) I guess to some extent is true. (laughs) I think that it didn't used to be true. I got into programming writing a lot of dynamically typed programming languages for a long time because I was genuinely very frustrated with the statically typed languages that I had used at the time. And it took me kind of a long time both to understand what I did like about type systems, how to use them effectively, but also to find languages that I appreciated. And there's still, I think, it's kind of funny, I think, when people accuse me of only using statically typed programming languages because the blog itself that everybody's reading is written in Racket, which is <laughs> primarily a dynamically typed programming language. Right. And I've written quite extensive programs in dynamically typed programming languages. And I think that there are absolutely ways in which there are things about dynamic typing that are nice. But at the same time, I think that one of the things that I've really come to feel strongly about is that I just don't think that we teach almost anyone, how to use a type system. And this is something that is intriguing to me because if you look at basically any computer science curriculum, and I mean, I tend to have a very low opinion of most computer science curricula anyway, but I think that there are some that are better than others. And even amongst the ones that I I do really respect, I feel like usually type systems are mostly encountered as sort of a incidental concept that comes up in some other course, whether it's a data structures course or a compilers course. And even in that context, most of the time it's discussed in a relatively simple way. Like if you want to have a variable that holds an integer, then you declare it int. And while that's you know a fine way to think about a type system in the simple case, when you really start thinking about designing a system in the large, the way that you use a type system is so much more complicated than just, well, you just think what the data is and then you that's its type. Write it down, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that in reality, the way to effectively use a type system requires understanding on some level what the type system does, how it works, what it's for, how to make it work for you. And, and that's one of the things that I've tried to find ways to communicate, but it's still very hard because I think this is especially the case with so many static type languages that are also object-oriented. There's a tendency of object-oriented programming languages to really encourage people to just say, well, you know, 
here are the concepts in my domain, here are the nouns in my domain. And then I'm just gonna make a bunch of classes that correspond directly to those nouns. And in practice, this actually does not produce very good programs most of the time. It tends to not align very well with the sorts of distinctions that you actually want to make in the type system. And so it's a little bit frustrating because I just don't think, even I think amongst people that talk about type-driven design, there's only so much discussion about like, here's what a type system is and here's how to reason about it. It's funny, like I completely agree. And I think that there's definitely an entire category of like how to use static types effectively that I think is specifically not taught because it's not in object-oriented languages or it's not common or it's not ergonomic or something along those lines. You mentioned at the beginning that like a lot of people have been asking about parse don't validate and they found it really valuable. And I'm glad. I confess when I saw that blog post and I read like a little bit into it and I was like, oh yeah, I agree. I don't think I even finished it. I was just like, yeah, I I know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the terminology of like, you know, it's like, oh, this is a good way to think about it. But I was like, I don't need to read the whole thing. Like I already do this and like agree with it. I'm reminded of something and I'm, I'm going to take a bet here that you probably felt the same way if you did or did not see the talk. But one of my talks that I'm most well known for is called Making Impossible States Impossible. And it's just about the, you know, making valid states unrepresentable. I just decided to choose a different name for the talk for various reasons. But like, this is like one of the earliest things that I learned from Evan Chaplicki from Elm, and, uh, but also like Ron Minsky at Jane Street gave a talk about it. You know, before that, like I very, very much did not come up with this concept. But the fact that it's a popular talk is illustrative of the fact that it's not widely known. It's like for a lot of people, that talk was the first time they ever heard of that. And that's true, even though probably a lot of them went through a four-year computer science degree. Nobody at any point in that degree ever mentioned this like really basic, probably to you and me, concept like that we've been well aware of for a long time. It's just not out there for some reason. And I think like Parsonal validates another example of this. It's like, yeah, like if you can do that, like this is just a, a really basic way to get more out of your type system about turning something that could be just like, oh, I checked this and then I no longer got the type checker's assistance in knowing that it's actually been validated forever now. And also that like maybe it was transformed into a way that has more useful properties and more useful guarantees. That's a thing everybody should know, but it's not taught for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I I definitely have had a similar reaction to the one that you described, to sort of people's reaction to my blog post. I mean, to the point where it's become kind of a running joke among some of my friends that I'll get people pinging me on like a biweekly basis about, oh, you know, I read Parson Validate and really appreciated it. Whereas, you know, it's much rarer to have people say that about almost any other blog post that I've written. And I think that in some ways, you know, I can't really complain. Obviously, it's been very successful at communicating the ideas to a broader group of people. But I think also sometimes I think people give me more credit than I'm really due in that I've seen people sort of citing my blog post in contexts where I'm sure the person had existing familiarity with my uh, yeah. idea and did not pick it up for me at all. I mean, this idea, as you say, has existed for a long, long time. But also I think that, you know, I guess I'll use this as a time to say, if you have read that blog post of mine and you haven't read the other ones, please take a look at some of the other blog posts (laughs) that I wrote sort of as follow-ups to those. Because I think that in many ways, those contain much more interesting ideas. And, you know, obviously I I appreciate having written the first blog post because it makes it easier to build on top of those ideas and explore other things. But there's definitely much more 
to be discussed that I think is a more interesting conversation than just personal validity, which, as you say, I think is relatively straightforward. But I think there is definitely value at the same time, again, thinking of it from a teaching perspective in having like a, a self-contained, like, here is this concept presented start to finish and like in a encapsulated way that you can share. I didn't know this at the time, but I later people pointed out to me, like Ron Minsky gave a talk about, among other things, about this concept of like making illegal states unrepresentable, I think was what he called it, which definitely predates the talk that I gave. But it's part of like an hour long lecture that he gave to like, some university students. And so like, it's a lot harder to like share that with someone and be like, Oh, Hey, here's this concept. Like here's a video to watch, to do it. So it makes me glad that I did actually give this separate talk because it is like a more shareable thing. And I think similarly, like personal validate, like to me, there's definitely value in like, even just like the succinctness of that title. It's like something you can just say, so, Hey, Try parse, don't validate with this, you know, like a code review, right? That's a really valuable thing to help the idea spread is just like coming up with a, a pithy title and then like having a really one place you can go to just get the start to finish explanation of the concept. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that specific thing has been a significant factor in its success, which I guess, again, has been maybe a little bit more successful than I had ever anticipated. <laughs> I mean, I guess the other thing that I'll say is that I wrote that blog post mostly with my coworkers in mind, because we were bringing on some people who didn't have as much Haskell experience. And I was doing code review and a lot of the blog posts, and I guess this is one of the reasons I haven't written a blog post in something like a year, because a lot of the blog posts I was writing at the time just came out of experiences that I had working with my coworkers. And I've mostly been working more or less independently or with one other person recently who has a lot of Haskell experience. So there hasn't been as many of those teaching moments But I think that that particular blog post was me trying to come up very explicitly with a way to communicate to those people. And it just turned out to be much more broadly applicable than (laughs) I ever could have imagined, which again, you know, I appreciate. So with that in mind, I'm actually curious about, so another thing of yours that that I've watched more than once is your deep dive into like performance of different effect systems in Haskell, which is really cool. So a bunch of people were working on the programming language I'm working on. We were all like talking about that talk like <laughs> around when it came out. So yeah, congrats for like making something that people like again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, who was the target audience for that talk? Because I'm guessing that was not just like coworkers doing application development because you really got like way under the hood into like, you know, performance numbers of all these different effect systems and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the target audience at that talk was very explicitly the Haskell community at large and specifically people who were both working on effect systems and interested in effect systems. I think that one of the, I mean, that talk was ostensibly about effect systems and it was sort of about effect systems, but of course the actual content of the talk largely focused on things that didn't really have anything to do specifically with effect systems or really more about aspects of the GUC optimizer, how GUC compiles Haskell programs, Haskell performance generally, and really just performance generally. And I think that my motivation for that particular talk, as I think many of my blog posts have been as well, was I saw a particular idea that many people had, and it was an idea about, or a set of ideas about concepts that I was passionate about, but that there were lots and lots and lots of common just kind of misconceptions or or just blatantly incorrect. (laughs) And I think that that was one of the things that really motivated me to produce that talk is that there was a lot of superstition, a lot of just kind of 
people fumbling around in the dark without really getting serious about what it was that they were measuring, where the performance was coming from, what was actually going on. And I just found that kind of frustrating because I saw people going around saying, oh, you know, this is fast and this is slow without really knowing, one, what does that mean? And two, why is that the case? And I think that generally when it comes to performance, this is definitely true in the Haskell community, but I think is also true of just programmers generally, that people are not very serious about really getting to the bottom of where performance characteristics come from, what the details are. And I understand why, because I think doing performance investigation is sort of fundamentally abstraction breaking in a way that not even really debugging is. It's something that requires you to really understand what's going on in the guts of whatever system you're working with, which I understand not everybody is. It's not worth it for everybody to really take the time to to figure that out. But I do think that it's important for people that are working on systems like that to be serious about it and approach it with a mindset of really getting answers rather than just kind of empirically trying things and seeing what happens. I really like that term. It's like abstraction breaking. I've always like thought of it as like, once you start getting into performance optimization, inevitably you end up sort of like having to look under the covers, like just peel back the layers and just like see what's actually going on between the code that you're writing and what's ending up you know, getting sent to the machine itself. I definitely sometimes feel like there's a bit of a curse involved because once I learn about something the optimizer is doing or about something the CPU is doing, I can't not know about it. Even in cases where I'm like, this is probably not going to make a difference. And I think the code will be a little bit less clear if I do it this way, but I know, you know, I know that it's there and I just, it makes me want to do the thing, even though I know like I probably shouldn't do it, but I still feel drawn to do it. It's like, I'm, I'm now torn in a way that I wasn't before I, you know, looked behind the Yeah, yeah. I totally understand what you mean. And I I think it's kind of interesting because I think that that instinct is really the real source of, there's the classic Don Knuth quote, premature optimization is the root of all evil. And I actually posted about this on Twitter a few months ago, which is that there's a lot of context to that quote that I think is often lost. 100%. I say this all the time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's about micro-optimization. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's about basically saying that you want to make sure that you have the opportunities to gain those optimizations. Those are really important. And if you structure your program in a way that you can't then later go in and gain those optimizations, then you've really messed up. You know, It's not an excuse to, to just ignore it altogether. But it's specifically talking about that instinct. When you have some local decision that you can make and you can do it in a clearer way or a way that will maybe be slightly faster but irrelevant, then do it in the clearer way first. But leave yourself room to go back and improve things later. And I think that this is one of the things that, you know, is often deployed as an excuse to say, well, we'll just build a slow system and then worry about performance later when in fact people do that and then they get to the state where they realize, in fact, there's really no way to go from where they are to where they want to be without completely rewriting the entire system, which I think is a little bit frustrating, but I also understand. And I think in some situations, just banging something out as simple as possible is actually the right thing to do. But when people are doing, you know, real serious software engineering in the large on an established mature system, I don't think that that's really a a great approach, but so it goes. I I agree. Like this is something we talked about on a a previous podcast episode that was like pretty focused on performance optimization or ended up being. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, the quote, like, make it work, make it pretty, make it fast or something along those lines. It's a big risk. I mean, you're really rolling the dice that like it's going to be possible to make it fast. It's like, it's really not a recipe for ending up with fast software. 
Yes. I think that this is one of the things that is not really discussed all that much in our software culture. And I guess I could speak to this a little bit more broadly, which is that I think that we as an engineering discipline, we talk about how we care about particular values. Like we care about craftsmanship as far as it applies to software. But I think that in practice, a lot of the time, we pay lip service to those things, but we're not really very serious about it. And there aren't very many organizations that I'm familiar with that are really genuinely serious about that. But if you really get down to it, it's very simple why. I mean, it's just not economically incentivized, I think. And it's very easy to get into a situation where you've established market dominance and your software doesn't work all that well, but it still works and it's more featureful than anybody else who is in the same space. And it's very expensive to get into those spaces. And so I think we've ended up in a kind of disappointing, like I feel like in many ways, and people have commented on this, there are many software niches where software seems like it's kind of stagnating or you know, we, we have software that works more slowly or where things are more broken than they were 10, 20 years ago. And obviously we've made huge leaps and improvements and things are enormously more secure and all of that. And I don't want to downplay that. But I do think that there are ways in which we're not really that serious about these particular things. Another aspect is documentation of software. Another aspect is just kind of general usability of software in terms of the user experience of it all. And I definitely think that while some of those things are sort of directly in the purview of engineering and some of them are not, I definitely really value those things. And I think that one of the things that I've been trying to do at the last couple of places that I've worked is encourage people to take a little bit more of a stand as an engineering department and have an engineering culture of doing these things in a way that is committed to actually having and upholding values. Because I think that really that is our responsibility. Like it's easy for us to say, oh, you know, the business doesn't care about these things. But I think it is important for us as engineers to be able to say, this is the set of values that we have as an engineering department. And, you know, we're willing to work with you on scope or our particular approach, but ultimately we have to uphold these things. And that's not something that, of course, business people are ever going to think about because that's not what their job is. And there's definitely like, some of these trade-offs are things that end up getting chosen not thoughtfully. Like it's easy to say, for example, the incentive structures are lined up such that, of course, you're not going to pay attention to performance because the most important thing is like getting market share for the business to survive. And only after you've gotten market share, do you have the luxury of thinking about performance, yada, yada. But that's sort of like presupposing that what's actually happening is that people are day to day making a decision. They're like, you know what? We could do it in this way, which would lead to an ability to have better performance later on. But we are making the decision that it's more important to chase market share right now. So we're going to do the other thing. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's actually happening is that people either are not thinking about it at all, or if they are thinking about it, maybe they don't have enough experience with performance optimization to know what it means to set things up to be able to you know, have performance improvements in the future. Oftentimes, like I hear about this in the context of scaling and people will talk about like, oh, I need to set this up to be massive, massive scale in the future. And there's that great Gary Bernhard quote where he's like, I want to start a consultancy where all I do is tell you your data set fits in memory. That'll be $15,000. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I could speak 
at some length. I mean, I, I think I've often joked about how I don't understand why people keep trying to go out of their way to build distributed systems because, which are, you know, an infamously easy problem in computer science. <laughs> yes, I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with what you just said. And I think that one of the things that I've always found frustrating, but also interesting, is as you said, a lot of people who are working on things, they're not really consciously making decisions about this, right? There's a particular task that they need to implement and there's an easy way for them to do it. And maybe there's a harder way for them to do it, but it feels just kind of like, well, there's a lot of pressure to get things done. And also it would just be harder to do it the slightly harder way, although probably not that much harder. And so people just say, well, you know, we'll just kind of do it the easy way for now. But of course, nobody then goes back and cleans things up. And, and I think to some extent you could say, well, that's just kind of the way it is. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But I actually do think that there are ways in which this is not great. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this is really the fault of us as engineers, the fault of us as engineers as individuals. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about over the past couple of years. So I currently am employed working on GHC, the Haskell compiler. And there's a lot of things about GHC that are kind of quirky as a group. I mean, it's run by a bunch of people from different organizations. There's no one who owns GHC. And for better or for worse, this culture is kind of insulated from the rest of the Haskell ecosystem, which I actually think is probably not a great thing. But there are some things about the GHC culture that I think are really great. And one of those is that GHC has this system called notes, capital N notes. And the idea is that there's just lots and lots of comments. I mean, I can't even communicate the magnitude of how many of these comments there are just littered throughout the code base at great length. But unlike in a lot of code bases, the way that it works is rather than just having a comment sort of right next to where the thing that it's describing applies, it will be written in maybe the same module, but then there will be a little header that says note and then some name. And then somewhere else in the code, someone will say, you know, a comment that says C notes XYZ. And this can be a reference from many different places. And so that you effectively have this cross-referenced web of comments describing lots of different things. And it really, like you can pick any module in the compiler and there will be hundreds of lines of these comments. And this is something that is very distinctly different from other projects, but it sort of sustained itself because this is just the way that people do things in GHC. And so when somebody new comes and starts contributing to the project, they see, oh, there's all these notes everywhere. Maybe they'll just start adding their own, or maybe they won't, but someone will review their pull request and they'll say, hey, you know, could you add a note about this? And they will. And just through this process, they sort of organically start realizing this is just the way that we do things when working on GHC. This is the way it's done. And that is an effect that I feel like should not be understated. There's just sort of organic yeah. cultural osmosis of this is our values as a community and therefore those values self-perpetuate. And I feel like that's something that is hard to maintain in an organization that has really high turnover, which is often the case with a lot of tech companies. But I think that it's something that's really valuable. And I definitely, at the past couple places that I've worked, I've been kind of trying to find ways to establish more of an engineering culture in that respect that can be serious about things like performance and documentation and talking about things like type systems and all these things yeah. in a more serious way than just individuals. Because I feel like we get into the habit of people will just kind of say things and whether or not they're true, we just kind of accept them. Like, ah, oh, you know, JavaScript is slow. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things beyond that that are, are more than just JavaScript as a slow programming language. So 
anyway, that's just a, a long rant to say that I think that it's important to be a little bit more serious about talking about those things. Well, I, I do think that there's hope for like the broader engineering culture to improve along these lines. I think going back to scaling for a second, that didn't used to be like, uh, as I recall it, like in like the 1990s. Now, granted, I wasn't working professionally then, but like I remember reading about a lot of things in programming and concerns about scaling was not really one of them. That seemed like something that kind of came with like the web getting really big. But it definitely is an aspect of performance that has become sort of top of mind for a lot of people. There's definitely a lot of people talking about how do we scale effectively? And it's a really common question that people ask about a new technology, like, hey, does it scale? Or like, how does it scale? And things like that. But if that's something that people can be worried about, then surely it's also something people can be worried about for like performance more broadly. Like, is this going to run fast? Is it going to be able to be made to run fast in the future if we keep you know, growing it and adding more features to it? Or is our design ruling that out in the same way that you might today ask the question, is our design ruling out being able to scale in the future? So somehow there became this like collective meme of like asking about scaling and thinking about scaling I don't know exactly when, maybe it was after hearing some horror stories. Like I remember the Twitter fail whale was particularly infamous where Twitter was going down all the time. And maybe a lot of people looked at that, and like whatever that was like 2009 or something like that. And we're saying like, uh, Oh, we got to make sure that we're able to scale successfully so that we don't end up having a, you know, our site go down all the time. But I'm guessing that was something that however it came up, it wasn't just people reading about that at on news sites. I bet it was also some aspect of, what are people talking about at conferences? What are people writing blog posts about? And if people you know, see that and they write about, oh, don't have this happen to you. Here's how to scale your thing, MongoDB, you know, or whatever. Then you know, that sort of like is a way for it to enter our collective consciousness. And if that could work for something like scaling, presumably it could work for something like performance optimization as well. Yes, I agree with that. And I think, I guess I will just say briefly that one of the experiences that I feel grateful that I had when I was... It's sort of my second software job. I worked at a place that had kind of a funny culture where people would say, sort of half-jokingly, would say to people, go off and do that thing as an empowered engineer. And it was just kind of a, a jokey stock phrase that people would say. But I think that there was a, a sort of actual truth to it, which was this idea that as individuals working at organizations, we actually have a lot of power to uphold those values and do things that advance them as individuals, it doesn't have to be something that, like, obviously, it's important to get buy-in from the team in order for it to work, but anybody can really kind of start doing that. And so I think there is indeed a lot of hope for us as a culture to be able to move in positive direction. I do actually, though, want to ask you about something a little bit different. It's sort of related, but a little bit different. Sure. Because I know that, obviously, you have had quite an extensive experience with the Elm programming language. That's true. <laughs> and I know that now you're working on Rock, which is obviously, I have to imagine, in some part, informed by your experiences working with Elm, both oh, yeah. positive and Rock negative. Rock is a direct descendant of Elm, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think one of the things that I am most curious about is I've always felt like there was a, a little bit of time when Elm was positioned to really kind of go mainstream, if you know what I, I mean, where there was a lot of interest in it. And as much as I sort of totally sympathize and understand Evan's 
instincts to keep the development relatively small and directed and in line with his broader vision. Because I think if I were in that position and I had some programming language that I've been working on for years, it would be very hard for me to say, well, I'll just, you know, let other people work on it. And <laughs> even if I know that they don't really share my specific vision. But I'm a little bit curious, given that you were so closely involved with some of that initial uptake, what your thoughts are in terms of the community building and whether or not you feel like there was sort of a missed opportunity there, or if you feel like TypeScript was just going to come in and necessarily eat its lunch anyway. <laughs> I'm just curious what your thoughts would be. That's a great question. I guess there's several sub questions there. So I guess I could just like talk about some, I don't know, thoughts I have on, on the sure. subject. So one of the things that I've noticed, because I've spent a lot of time now looking at different programming languages, and I guess especially there's a natural selection bias to look at programming languages that were successful for some definition of successful, because a lot of times someone will make a language and it never really goes anywhere and no one ever hears about it. And it's, I don't know, I guess you could study those too, but it's kind of a lot harder. I've recently watched a talk that I really enjoyed actually about where PHP came from, which is not a language I've ever used, but I, I really like the talk. It was like 25 years of PHP, Rasmus Lerdorf who made it. And of course I know how Elm came to be and you know other like Haskell and other languages. And one thing that I've noticed that the languages seem to have in common is that they find something that works for them. What that is really varies very dramatically by language. You can almost find a counterexample for every different style of like another language that did it the opposite way and it worked out. A lot of people will say like, oh, you can't really design by committee and have a successful language. And it's like, well, what about Haskell? Like, I mean, you could say Haskell's not mainstream, which is fair, but like it's certainly been a, it's a widely used language. Like lots of people use Haskell professionally or as hobbyists or as researchers or whatever. I would call Haskell a successful language, even though I wouldn't call it a mainstream one. Similarly, I would say that like, I would definitely call Elm a main, uh, sorry, a successful language, although not a mainstream one. We like to joke that like there was a New York Times crossword puzzle answer. The like, question was like a programming language named after a tree and the answer was Elm. So like, <laughs> I guess we're mainstream now or the New York Times crossword. But for real, it's obviously not like a mainstream language. But you mentioned TypeScript and I think there's definitely an, an aspect of like, a lot of the value proposition of Elm to JavaScript programmers was type checking. And now TypeScript fills that niche without having to like learn a whole different paradigm. So there's definitely an element of like, if TypeScript had never gotten big, I think Elm would have gotten some amount bigger, but probably I don't think there's a world where Elm would have gotten as big as TypeScript has just, just like on its own. I think there's a lot of potential reasons for that. And I think there are easy, like oversimplistic explanations for that, which I think if you haven't looked at a lot of different languages and how they got big, I think it would be easy to say, oh, well, that's because Evan sort of takes the lone wolf. 99% of the compiler work that's been done on Elm was done by Evan. Small tangent. Sometimes people would talk about like the bus factor. Like what if, uh, how many people do you have to get hit by a bus or you know, the, the nicer version as the like retirement factor or whatever, but everybody says bus factor. So I'm just going to go with that. And people would say, oh, Elm's got a bus factor of one. Like how many people do you have to get hit by a bus before it's like catastrophic for the project? And it's like, well, Evan's done like everything. So it'd be really catastrophic. And it's like, okay, but like, let's say setting aside the incredibly morbid and like, you know, heartless, like <laughs> fact of like talking about it like that. Let's say that Evan, for whatever reason, decided to take up sheep farming. And that's just like what he does with his life now. And he doesn't sure. do programming. What happens to the community, et cetera, and like progress on the language. And the short answer is like, well, people would look at the code base and try to figure it out and pick it up and keep going with it. So now having worked on a language that's like 
rock is done pretty differently. Like Evan and I are pretty different people and like different things work differently for us. I feel fortunate that we found something that works for rock. But the thing that works is that we actually have multiple different people who are specialized on different parts of the compiler. What's amusing to me is that I think we still have a bus factor of one. It's just multiple different ones. Sure. There's certain people like if that person gets hit by a bus or takes up sheep farming and walks away from programming, this part of the compiler, nobody knows how it works anymore. And it's very easy to say like, oh, well, everybody else should just learn about that and then problem solved. But the whole reason that they're the expert on that is because there's a lot of background knowledge required to work on that part of the compiler. And the rest of us don't have those years of experience. And like, yes, we could just learn that one part of the compiler. But for example, there's a linker that we have. I have actually done quite a lot of pair programming with the person who wrote our custom linker, but I don't understand all of it because there's just a whole lot of aspects of like the elf binary format that I just, I have a very thin understanding of. And so if I tried to go in and make unaided edits to that part of the compiler, like if he stopped working on it, I would really struggle with that. So I bring this up as an example of, I don't think the reason that like Elm is not a mainstream programming language really has anything to do at all with the fact that like Evan's kind of like a lone wolf. That's the style that works for him. And I think it's also very easy to say, oh, well, he should have just, I don't know, like opened it up more or like collaborated with more people. But I think it's easy to be, uh, I don't know, this is like an American term for those listening not outside of America, I apologize, but like the Monday morning quarterback where you like, after the (laughs) fact, go back and say, well, I would have done everything exactly the same way, except these things I would have done differently. And there would have been no downsides, only upsides to that. I think it's Elm's success has been like very remarkable and unusual. If you look at like the state of JS survey that comes out every year, for the past couple of years, it's been pretty consistent that like when they talk about compile to JS languages, it's like TypeScript, which is like enormous, like it's yeah. massive. <laughs> and then number two with a very severe drop off is Elm. And then like numbers three, four, five, six, et cetera, after that are like, eh, it's like significant drop offs after Elm. It's like, there aren't really any others that are like, close to catching up with Elm. But if you think about the fact that in a language that's like basically the most monocultural of any like major business domain I can think of, which is front-end web development, the success stories have been in history. They have been JavaScript itself, compiled to JavaScript languages, which self-describe as, quote, it's just JavaScript, by which I mean TypeScript and CoffeeScript, both of which have had that tagline, and Elm. Those are the major like success stories. Yeah. I mean, there have been others that like, you know, got some usage. So the fact that a language that's like pure functional ML family language doesn't even offer JavaScript FFI could be that successful. Some confluence of factors came together to make that work out to the degree that it has. And it's very, I don't know, there's a lot of hubris, I think, to saying like, oh, I could have swapped out some of those ingredients and it would have still been fine. And in fact, it would have been better. Do that at your own peril. There's a lot of languages that didn't make it as far as Elm has with a lot less disturbance <laughs> like like in the early sure. days. So why don't I think Elm is mainstream today? And honestly, I think that TypeScript is a part of it, but the bigger reason is just that not enough people are willing to give it a try. And the reason for that has mostly to do, I think, with social proof. There aren't any like big name, big companies using it. Like no Red Ink is becoming big. We're now at like 150 employees. That's not a huge company. That's not, you know, Google anywhere near it. <laughs> sure. But it's like a big successful company that like got big using Elm. Our whole front end's in Elm. It's not like we just like have like an internal admin tool. It's like 
you know, we have millions of users serving millions of web requests, billions of questions answered. All of that's going through our hundreds of thousands of lines of Elm front end. If there were a bunch of stories like that, which there, there could be, there just currently aren't, I think that would cause Elm to get used more. But at the end of the day, getting those things to happen also requires a lot of luck. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no recipe for just like, oh, just like have a bunch of startups use your thing and then they get big. But like, that's why PHP is big. That's why, you know, Python is big. It's just like the social proof that exists today did not exist when those languages first came out. Yes. So I think those are like the really big factors that don't get talked about a lot. Yeah. I mean, that all makes sense to me. And it's interesting to hear your perspective because I guess... To just describe briefly where I'm coming from when asking those questions is I have always been very interested in how programming languages function as communities, not just as technical projects. And one example of one such community that I feel like there was sort of genuine missed opportunity was the Clojure community, because I think that the Clojure community, there was genuinely a lot of interest in this dynamically typed functional programming language that runs on the JDM. And for a time, there was a lot of interest from a lot of relatively large organizations in using it in some capacity. But I think that what's interesting to me about Clojure is that the core implementation of it has always been very closed. And it's not something that... Rich Hickey and other folks who worked on it at Cognitech were very interested in accepting contributions. But what I think has always frustrated me, and I mean, this is very, very different from the story with Elm, but it was always very clear to me that there are some aspects of the language that Rich Hickey was very interested in working on. And I mean, I will say, like, for all the things that I dislike about Clojure, I think that the data structures and the concurrency primitives are wonderful. And it is probably to this day, the language with the best support for just standard persistent immutable data structures that I've ever seen. Because I think that so many functional programming languages were all still using linked lists, which are terrible, (laughs) terrible data structure. And the fact that it just kind of comes out of the box with hash array map tries for hash tables and similar implementations for persistent vectors, really, really wonderful. But then on the other hand, there were aspects of the compiler where when you got a compiler error, it would just spill a Java stack trace at you that described some internal error that happened in the compiler. And there were a bunch of people who were interested in fixing these things. Whereas, you know, clearly Rishiki was just not personally all that passionate about it, which I totally understand. That's not even like a, I can't even fault him for that. But the fact that there just wasn't very much interest in allowing other people to improve those parts of the language, I think was really to its detriment. And I think it's fair to be honest about that, even if obviously, you know, I can be sympathetic to some aspects of his perspective about not kind of feeling it was it was his personal project and he didn't want to spend a bunch of time organizing the social community. And I've always wondered a little bit about to what extent, obviously, Elm is very different because I think Evan's approach has been historically very, very different from Rich's approach in terms of what he focuses on and the cohesion of the language. But it has interested me because I think there's a few programming languages that have brought functional programming and functional programming ideas to a broader audience. And it's always interesting to take some lessons away from what they did really well and and maybe what they didn't do as well. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to look at it. I don't know the closure community nearly as well as I know the Elm community, obviously. Like I have a couple of friends in the closure community, but I can't speak to like <laughs> like what things are like over there because I just don't know. Sure. But I will say that a thing that I think is underappreciated is that a lot of us have a lot of experience and like it's sort of normal for us to like work on a, a team of maybe three to five people that's embedded within a larger team of like 15 plus people. And going from that to working in a model where you have a lot of disparate contributors, each contributing like a small number of patches and stuff like that, maybe is not such a stretch. But I think it's easy to forget that like we had to like get accustomed to that. And that's not something that just like, oh, just falls into your brain. It's like, oh, okay, uh, this is how I'm used to working now. It's fine. Like I know that Evan had worked at like Google before. So he has some experience in that from that perspective. But to me, that doesn't equate to like, oh, if Evan had opened up his project more. And again, I don't know what Rich Hickey's background is when it comes to like team dynamics and stuff. I don't think it's safe to assume that the Elm compiler would have gotten good in the ways that it did thanks to like Evan being able to focus on that and not having to like do the management work of dealing with a lot of different contributors. I don't think it's safe to assume that it would have done that or that like those many contributors would have outweighed the toll that that would have taken on Evan's workflow where he's the most effective. Sure, of course. And one of the things I think you've probably experienced this too, like working on compilers is that it's definitely a specialization. There's a lot of background, especially with like a typed language. I don't know about you, but for me, I definitely have the most trouble working on the type checking part. That's the thing that is like the static type checker, like for me, and this is just like rocks is just like Henley Milliner type inference. It's not even like doing any of the like bi-directional stuff that like GHC is doing, let alone like linear types or any, any of that. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff that GHC does that rocks does not do. And yet for me, that's the hardest part. And I feel very fortunate that I've had a couple of people get interested and get involved in the project who are much better at that stuff than I am. And so that's, they're the bus factor on, on the type checking stuff. Not Absolutely. Me. But if I flip that around and put myself, something that I'm very impressed by is the degree to which Evan is like really good at a lot of different aspects of compiler development. Mm-hmm. And maybe in an ideal world, he's also good at those and also his personal style that makes him effective involves getting a bunch of other collaborators involved and doing all the social work of getting them on the same page and getting them aligned and like making sure that they're working towards a shared vision and all that stuff. It's like a lot to ask to say like, you should be good at all of these really niche things that don't really come up anywhere else in programming. And also that, you know, no, I, I I totally (laughs) agree. And I think that obviously it's very easy as you kind of alluded to earlier to sit back and say, Oh, you know, what if, but it's impossible to know, how things would have gone differently. And there's lots and lots of pros and cons to every single trade-off that you can make. And I think that there's actually a lot to be said for the sort of cohesiveness and the consistency of a language that is indeed the vision of one person or a small group of people rather than just having a design by committee approach. Because I think there are just things that you can do when you have a couple people with a shared vision that are very hard to do otherwise. But I do think... I guess just abstractly, it's also kind of interesting to think about if I were in the position where I were to develop a programming language and suddenly a bunch of people were very interested in using it and they were sort of pulling me in lots of different directions in ways that I recognized that I couldn't really manage. There's kind of a question that I would have of, is it my responsibility to maybe find somebody who is capable of managing that or is it better for the language's future 
to continue just kind of doing it myself and steering the ship and holding it to the vision that I've always had in my head. And genuinely, I feel like if I were in that position, I would not be able to easily (laughs) come to any particular answer. But it is something that I think is interesting to think about. And that's why I appreciate you describing your experiences with Elm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think you hit on a great point, which is that if you've got a bunch of collaborators, like they have a stake in the project that's more than just like a thing on paper. It's like they're important to the project. And so their voices naturally are going to get elevated above if they're users of the project. And if you have a very strong vision and a very specific vision, yeah, one of the downsides that can come up from like sort of distributing the implementation of the language is that people can say, hey, we think we should go in a different direction. And if enough of them say that, and you're like, but I actually very strongly think we should go in this one direction, that could be like a a crisis. And it's very easy to look at that and say like, oh, well, they're probably right because the majority is always right. As we all know, that's the thing that's true in history always. But maybe they're not because I mean, with Evan in particular, there is no other programmer I've ever worked with where the following situation has come up as often as it has with me and Evan, which is I'm like, okay, I understand where this person's coming from, but I think they're wrong and I'm right in this case. And I'm going to make the case that I'm right. And then one to two years later, I look back and I'm like, oh no, he was right. I was wrong. I just, I just actually like, I was missing something and I just didn't see it. But sometimes it takes me like a year or two, but like, I mean, it's probably over 90% of the interactions I had with Evan that started off with me trying to sell him on some idea I had for the direction of Elm. And I look back and I was like, he was totally right. And I just didn't get it. Sure. And so knowing that track record as I do (laughs) in retrospect, it's hard for me to be like, oh, you know, if I, for example, had, I never wanted this, but like, let's say that I had had an interest in working on Elm's compiler, if I'd wanted that and Evan had been like, no, you know, I want to kind of like, you know, maintain control, which was never really how any of those things happened. Like other people did work on the compiler at different times. It was just never like a a major contributor. I don't know. I, I don't think that if I had then used that extra power to like try to pull the language in a different direction, that that would have been good for the language. I think probably the opposite based on how those things worked out in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And I definitely don't doubt that what you say (laughs) was the case. Yeah. Wow, we talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else we should uh, talk about before we wrap up? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure that we could spend hours and hours talking about any number of different things. Totally, yeah. But I'm happy to call this enough for today. (laughs) All right. Cool. Alexis, thank you so much for joining me. really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. 